to the coda a music podcast and the perfect end note to your week i'm rob christopherson and with me he is the naughty to my nature the spin to my doctors brian hasty brian how's it going man rob um i know i started an episode uh, a one-off saying that i wish i were better and this is uh, still the case in episode three now i want to preface this by when uh, you you start a podcast listeners are everything aren't they yes yeah 100 percent so it seems like uh, the CODA uh, cast listeners uh, don't like us, Rob. And what I'm referring to, of course, is uh, last episode, we issued the first ever CODA challenge. And uh, we asked people to vote on whether or not you can twerk. And uh, no, slightly edged out, yes. Slightly, yeah. It was a really close race. Uh, 11 votes later, people do not think that my ass can move. And I am kind of upset about that, but I- I'm going to pull through it. We're going to pull through. Given that, I'm, I, I am also kind of mad about all of this. And uh, just to let all of our listeners know that, uh, Rob, I want you to twerk as much or as little as you want in the next 365, my friend. I'm going to up my game. Uh, you will see twerk videos left and right. That is my promise <laughs> to you people. Not going to say, I'm not going to, you know, 100% guarantee that I'm going to hold that promise, but I'm going to make a promise to make a promise. That's how it's going like to do. Yeah. You're, you're promising to promise, and I'm looking forward to all of the new content you create uh, in 2020. So given that, yeah, I'm a little uh, disappointed in everyone out there. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing okay. It was a fun little trek to work on a thin sheet of ice this morning, but, you know, we're surviving, man. We're surviving. I didn't fall, which I, uh, knock on wood, I have not fallen on my way to work uh, in the last two years so uh we're we're looking to keep that streak alive keep that hot streak going (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is ironic given that we're talking about you know dancing on ice here yeah i know uh we used to go to uh it was the uh the stars on ice in lake placid man we used to see that all the time it's uh it's staple so you know uh, just bring in whatever i can to the game here you got stars on ice. I got super dogs. Uh, it was super shitty uh, when I was a kid. Uh, basically, dogs doing tricks in front of thousands of people per night. Uh, I guess the tickets were cheap. I guess that's the main reason my parents took me. I still it still sounds amazing though. Still sounds amazing. Uh, I guess, except for the uh, my my big shame is that uh, when I was nine, I got picked out of the audience to uh, race a dog and rob. You know how racing a dog ends when you are a human being. Not well. I lost. Everyone made fun of me. Why do they do that to children? That is terrible. It's demoralizing. It is. Demoralizing. Ever since then, I've had a fear of competition. I, man, I don't blame you. Uh, That kind of trauma sticks with you for your entire life. Yeah, Super Dogs fucked me up. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Super Dogs fucked Brian up. Uh, You know, we're going to push past this, though. We're going to bring you guys the music news and content that you crave. And, uh... Our first bit of news comes from an article written by Danny Deal of The Verge. Great fucking name. Great name. Great name. Uh, A small Wisconsin company uh, stored thousands of people's CDs, then suddenly vanished. Great fucking headline. In November, 
a Madison-based company named Murphy, spelled M-U-R-F-I-E, which specialized in ripping physical media, offering high-quality cloud streaming of that media, as well as storage of CDs, tapes, and vinyl, or maybe, you know, 8-track if you had them. Uh, They all disappeared. Their website went offline on November 22nd, and emails were sent out to its customers saying that the company had ceased operations. The shutdown has been clouded in secrecy and a lack of response from the company. Even its alleged former CEO, Rex Mangit, was caught by surprise, as well as the co-founder of the company, Matt Yunkel, who had left uh, Murphy in 2015. The main concern is the return of physical media to its customers, which, according to the latest terms of service, Murphy is responsible for. In the email sent on November 22nd, Murphy told its customers to wait for instructions on how to recover their items. Those instructions came about a week later, on Black Friday, when a second email said customers had four days to claim their collections or they'd be marked, quote, abandoned. Customers were also responsible to pay a shipping fee over 10 times higher than Murphy's normal return cost in order to get their media back. A third email sent on December 2nd extended the deadline to December 5th and said there might be one or two in-person pickup days scheduled for those in Madison. Quote, if we can obtain the permission of the landlord... It's clear that the company has been going through some financial struggles this decade and made moves to remedy the strain, such as hiring a new CEO, reorganizing the company, and pursuing various mergers and acquisitions. But with the advent of streaming services, investors and employees, Murphy was not confident that the business would operate much longer. So they have folded. Um... Brian, given how much we, you know, love physical media, how much does this story make your heart hurt? So one of the many reasons why I decided to send this to you, uh, because it did make my heart hurt, is just it seems like such a a time and place kind of issue, right? Because uh, we live in this axis where uh, high-res streaming is uh, more and more easy, but we still have a lot of legacy media that isn't online yet. So this kind of like satisfied the the whole like uh, thirst for that cachet of people who needed their CDs, uh, 8-tracks, vinyl <laughs> records, and cassettes ripped, right? Uh, you forgot to read the best part about the article, Rob. What? Oh. Um... A tipster says Murphy customers still trying to get their collections back can try emailing CD returns to the number two U at gmail.com, <laughs> which is monitored by people connected to Murphy who are still hoping to return desks. This doesn't seem like super shady at all. No, it doesn't. Um, so what do you think the legal ramifications are here? How much hot water do you think the employees of Murphy are in? So I tried Googling to find the terms of service and I couldn't find them um, as they were before uh, because they were noting uh, in the article saying that like your property is your property even if we go bankrupt. But, you know, it's it's uh, it's a bit problematic. Uh, you know, trying to charge 400 bucks just to ship a bunch of CDs back uh, when it's probably worth, uh, I don't know, 50 bucks max to ship. Yeah, uh, completely just ridiculous. So, like, it's clear that uh, this company has, like, no money. So... Th- they have no means to actually ship back people's shit, so they're kind of just 
It seems like they're just kind of hoping that, you know, people just dust it under the carpet and they they won't even worry about it. But uh, also you can add uh, uh, music to your phone still. And I do not believe that people could tell the difference between lossy and lossless. No, uh, you guys have covered that on double density before. I'm pretty sure Angelo uh, is really strong about this subject. You know, he uh, he, you know, made a big deal about it. So, yes, you know, the, you, you really can't tell the difference. I don't know. Like even Neil Young has kind of stepped back from his position with his company and has kind of endorsed Apple Music at this point. <laughs> what do you mean you don't want to talk about Ponyo? <laughs> what do you mean you want to talk about Neil Young's digital music service Ponyo? Which did, is the Hawaiian word I found it for proper. Did um, anybody talk about Ponyo? No, no, I do not believe. Also, uh, I don't know if you remember their music players. Quite ugly. <laughs> it was god awful. Like, quite ugly. Where was... like, I, from what I remember, they were orange. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it brought me back to my real time player that I had at the yeah. time because it was, <laughs> I think, orange and blue. <laughs> it reminded me of the really shitty designs of the first MP3 players from like 2003, let's say, right? That had like 32 megs on them. Yeah. Like, didn't store jack shit and. Uh, it was kind of hard to find some of your songs, you know, it, it, unless you labeled them, yeah. you know, well. Uh, what was your first MP3 player? I got late in the game. So it was like a, it was an iPod classic, like one of the classics, five or six. I can't remember. I held on to CDs for a very long time. I did too. And then I bought, I, I want to say it was one of the ones that Microsoft made. It was had a like a blue screen on it. It was terrible, man. And and you could like probably murder somebody with it. Like <laughs> like some old school Cain and Abel shit here. It was heavy. Just real biblical murdering. Oh yeah, real biblical murdering. It could have happened. And I think that um the MP3 player that I'm more interested in is uh, my first major girlfriend. We were uh 16 or 17 at the time and her dad was a real tech head, so she got one of the 32 meg ones. And I'm <laughs> remember on there there was like like straight up pop punk it was like newfound glory mxpx uh like three or four more songs on there and that was it damn kicking it to the classics man you can't go wrong with that (laughs) no i yeah when when did you give up like a portable cd player uh 2004 okay okay i was a little bit late on that i thought it's like 2007 damn you really held on man I know, but I got one of those like portable ones with the uh, the ones that could play MP3s on them. Oh, okay, nice. So yeah, like one of the last generation ones that cost me like fifty bucks, and I was so happy because I had all these like burnt CDs of uh, completely legal music to listen to. Completely legal. Uh, do you completely want to redefine legal. those terms, please? <laughs> I owned those CDs at one point or another, not all at the same time, but I own them. <laughs> okay, that's uh, that's fine. We can we can live with that. I. Oh, thank God. I remember, the, so if you want a glimpse of uh, Rob back in high school, senior year of high school, uh, allow me to paint you a picture. So, had a heavy-ass backpack, you know, just lugging that around with me. Uh, I would always be carrying a CD wallet, no, CD binder. It had over 200 CDs in it, I would bring that with me every single day, and between classes, I would have my headphones on. Yes, that is the perfect picture of me, senior year of high school. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I didn't have, I was more of a chooser, I didn't have the wallet, I would pick like three CDs to bring with me, and those were the three I'd listen to. 
I needed variety, Brian. I couldn't see. I did too, but I was also very—I don't know—I was like, I was, I was very dedicated to the mission of like going through certain albums. I respect that. That's good game right there. You know, so I definitely like I stuck myself with some clunkers, but it's fine. It's fine. I listen to a lot of Mudvayne. You know, it's it's fine. It's fine. How much Mudvayne? Like an unhealthy <laughs> like amount? The first three CDs, I think, on repeat. Uh, yeah, like for like a week, I think. What else was in the mix for you at the time? Uh, uh, Jane's Addiction's second album, the one with um, uh, Being Hostile, Ritual de lo Habitual, I think. Yes, that yes, that is correct. So that was definitely there. Uh, Static X, definitely Static X. Uh, Jawbreaker, I'm trying to think what else here. Uh, early Baroness, like the first Baroness album. Uh, yeah, gosh, I think that's all I can remember off the top of my head. I'd have to like go through a, a box of my old stuff in order to uh, to fully comprehend what I was listening to at the time. Did your mom approve of this music? Oh, yeah. She was fine with it. She didn't really care. Uh, hot damn, man. You can't go As long as she didn't have to hear too much and she could smoke her cigarettes without problems, she didn't care. I mean, you know, you went to your first concert with your mother. I went to my first concert with my mother. So it's it's practically a tradition, you know, Yeah. that your parents <laughs> you just like, they, they are exposed to your music. Exactly. And they'll live with it. Yeah. So our second news item. Uh, comes from your side of the border, Brian. On well, December, so just yeah, just to before we begin this, Rob, like uh, you, uh, we've categorized you as an honorary Canadian. Yes, like this is a fact. So when you say our side of the border, what you really mean is ours, as in yours and mine. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm two hours away from the border. I'm pretty much, you know, a Canadian at this point. So yeah, you, you're you're right. Our side of the border. Yes. 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 Uh, on December 11th. Ontario passed a bill that created a poet, poet laureate position in honor of Gord Downey, the beloved lead singer of the Tragically Hip. The bill had been originally proposed in 2017, shortly after the singer's death. It was finally passed in the last legislative session of the year. According to the CBC, the job is designed to promote the arts and literacy in Ontario, raise the profile of poets in the province, and to act as an ambassador for Ontario poetry and literature. Of course, Downey was best known for his time in the Tragically Hip as the lead singer, songwriter, and lyricist for the band. He was also a poet and published his only collection of poetry, Coke Machine Glow, in 2011, alongside his first solo album of the same title. Downey's importance in promoting Canada through his lyrics cannot be understated. It, and in fact, it was stated in a New York Times editorial, quote, The place of honor that Mr. Downey occupies in Canada's national imagination has no parallel in the United States. Imagine Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, and Michael Stipe combined into one sensitive, oblique poet-philosopher, and you're getting close. End quote. It should be noted that Canada already has a poet laureate, as do many other Ontario cities, including Windsor, Barrie, London. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this one. Mississauga? Is that how it's pronounced? Mississauga. Okay. Uh, Ottawa and Toronto. Installing someone in the role at the Ontario legislature will help raise the profile of the province's $27 billion arts sector, which employs approximately 30,000 people. Uh, Percy Hatfield, the man who introduced the bill, stated that, quote, the role is particularly important for some of Ontario's more remote communities. 
if you think of going to rural or northern communities, they don't have the ballet of uh, or the museums or the opera or symphonies or blockbuster arts events. But if a poet laureate comes to visit, that's big news. And I think that would stimulate a lot of interest, end quote. Now, Brian, I know you're not an Ontario resident, but how great is this, man? Uh, you mean by Gord Downing, and I hope you're not talking about the MP? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> just clarifying. Yes. Uh, Gord Downing's national treasure from uh, coast to coast, and uh, he is sorely missed, uh, as you are well, well, Rob, because you're a huge hip fan. Uh, you know, his legacy precedes him. I also made the mistake of looking at the comments section to this article. Shouldn't have done that. <laughs> really? It's that bad. I'm glad I but avoided the top it. One, <laughs> the top one is enough already. Really? Uh, another one says, moral of the story, write trite, trite banal lyrics, back them up with third-rate musicians, and someone will mistake it for talent and immortalize you. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, That's not how this works. I've never wanted to punch Canadians more in my life. What the hell is going <laughs> on here? Those who can't create music comment on cbc.ca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I love this idea. Um, uh, the MP is totally right. I don't know if you know the geography of Ontario, but the majority of the people live uh, below the, uh, a certain part of the province, and there's a vast swath of people who are more spread out across the northern parts of the provinces. So it's really hard to get up there. It's the same thing in Quebec, too. We have a lot of um, northern communities up there, and uh, it's it's difficult to uh, sort of like a wholesale send up, you know, an opera company to go uh, and install themselves there for a month or whatever. But something like a poet laureate is a little bit easier to move along, right? And the idea of the poet laureate is, of course, to sort of uh, capture the essence of the country and, and write, um, keeping them uh, in their in, in the writer's heart uh, when they produce uh, new works. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that honors what Gord was trying to do in the last couple of years of his life and uh, bringing uh, indigenous issues to the forefront uh, in Canada. So, uh, you know, I think it's definitely a great honor. Um, if you if you had to single out one of Gord's solo releases that you really enjoy, what would you pick? Oh, my God. I'm about to pull up a list because I'm sure to forget one if I think about it. So just give me a second. Okay. I'm giving you a second. I would automatically pick something from Secret Path because I love the concept of both the record as well as the graphic novel. Yes. Honestly, I think the combination of, like, Jeff Lemire, who somehow is able to capture, like, humanness in, like, an off-kilter line better than anybody I've ever seen in my life. Combined with the music, yeah, the, it's like a tour de force. I agree with you. I met him last month. Nice man. Really? Yeah, he was doing an in-store at the comic book shop near my place. And, I, and so I popped in. Uh, I'm, of course, forgot my copy of Secret Path. So I had to scramble and I bought an issue of uh, of uh, Old Man Logan, like Wolverine that he worked oh, on nice. to get him. Nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I definitely would have to pick Secret Path. I think the the idea of the, the AV nature of the entire thing, right? And I think that um, uh, uh, Kevin Drew played on there, Owen Pallet. Uh, did he play? No, it's just Kevin Drew. Um, uh, co-wrote a bunch of stuff on there that's really, really good. Um, I really, really enjoy a lot of that. And uh, I don't know if you're a big Broken Social Scene fan at all, but uh, he definitely brought something to the table that uh, prior uh, Gord releases didn't necessarily have, right? Yeah, exactly. He brought like different inf- instrumentation to the table because a lot of what Gord was doing was solo stuff on the guitar, like kind of really, not necessarily folky, but acoustic and just like earthy but like i think uh like like especially with secret path kevin drew was able to like coax these other sounds that 
uh, for an album uh, with that subject matter actually ended up fitting pretty well. Like it, it, it um, it's one of the few albums that I saw uh, like Pitchfork review that is associated with Gore Downey that actually got good reviews. So, oh, really? Yeah, I think it ended up with like an 8.0 or somewhere around there. Okay, yeah, I could definitely see that uh, appeasing uh, the, the pitchfork heads. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I think like uh, it's probably the best multimedia project of the decade, just uh, in what it was able to accomplish. And um, I'm pretty sure, I, the, full stop, I used to have a reading group dedicated to the Tragically Hip. Uh, back in 2016, 17, somewhere around there. And we did pick Secret Path once it was released, uh, and we put it alongside the, I don't know if you're familiar with the book called A National Crime. It's uh, about... I'll have to Google that. Uh, yeah, it's it's a devastating book about the um, uh, yes. uh, residential schools in Canada, so it definitely fit with it uh let's just say there were people who were not a fan of that book based on its subject matter based on its its sort of conclusions uh its subject matter yeah. okay yeah it is it is pretty devastating and now that i'm looking at the cover i definitely have seen the book i've never read it though it's um yeah it's it, it's it's a tough one to get through uh so just quickly my favorite poet laureate uh in all of canada uh it was a man who was sworn in uh, in 2009 his name is uh, Rolly Pemberton, but he's also known as the alt-rapper Cadence Weapon. Um, and so he spent two years in Edmonton uh, uh, writing poems all about Edmonton. But he also released a, a ton of great music. So, Rob, this is my not my B-side recommendation, but I'm going to um, slide some uh, Cadence Weapon your way because his first album is entitled Breaking Cave Habe. And I think you'd enjoy that. I'm going to have to track this down. <laughs> yes. I think it's on Spotify, so I don't think you need to worry. He was signed to Anti in the States for a while, so like the epitaph, like the non-punk bands ended up on there like tom waits was on there for a while so i think that it's available online for you we'll have to check afterwards but i will definitely um add some cadence weapon to this episode's playlist excellent just completely the amazing. only <laughs> yeah, the only poet laureate uh whose name i instantly recognize when i look at the different canadian cities that's the only one right there that's okay because i don't recognize any of them i don't think uh yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like i'm them. an honorary canadian but i'm not like and in Canadian, you know, I'm not there. Right. I'm not there yet. Right. That's fair. I feel, unfortunately, with my B-side recommendation at the end of the episode, this is going to be a very Canadian episode, so I apologize in advance. Uh, you shouldn't have to apologize for who you well, are. It's in my nature as a Canadian to apologize. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's true. And uh, as we know, if you are an RCMP officer, you have other duties to attend to. So, um, See you later, Stan Mikulak. Yeah. Um, so, uh, our third piece of news, uh, was actually ignited on Twitter recently. On December 13th, Dave Paulson, a writer for the Tennessean, was attending a Luke Combs concert at the Bridgestone Arena in Nashville. Morgan Wallen was one of the artists opening up for him on that tour, and one song that has become a staple at his shows is a cover version of one of Jason Isbell's most beloved songs, Cover Me Up. While in attendance, Paulson tweeted out a partial video of the performance with the caption, quote, I think I'm in the upside down of Nashville, end quote. The video racked up views and started a controversy online, 
whether it's all right for mainstream country artist who is widely played on radio to cover an independent artist's signature song. Wallen has admitted to singing the song backstage to warm up before he made the decision to record it. Those who overheard it uh, urged him to record his own version of it. Wallen has said, quote, I was a little bit skeptical at first because I knew I'd get some hate for it, and I have, but it's mostly been love. As long as I'm able to sing, I'm going to sing this song just because I love it that much, end quote. It should be noted that every time Wallen performs the song, he introduces it as an Isbel cover. He's very uh, respectful of the song, and uh, I think that's one great thing that he brings to the table. And you can definitely feel the admiration he has for it in every performance. Uh, it's not a bad cover version of it. I don't, I don't think necessarily that what he brings to the table can necessarily be felt in his experience, but it's still generally a good performance. Uh, Wallen is also not the only artist to release a version of the song this year. Chris Stapleton has cut his own version of it. Uh, in May, Rodney Atkins released his own version of the song on his latest album, Caught Up in the Country. And Jake Hoot, the most recent winner of NBC's The Voice, covered the song early on in his run. Now... Zach Brown may have actually been one of the first artists to cover the song. Uh, it appears on a Spotify session that he did in 2017. If anything, I would be more offended by Brown's cover considering the release of his song Swayze this year, which contains the lyrics, quote, Because I can't be your Tom Cruise, bitch. I'm Patrick Swayze. Every time I get a new bitch, I meet a new bitch. I'm just saying. I'm so Swayze, Swayze, about to ghost on you, Patrick Swayze, Swayze, Swayze bitch, end quote. Brown. Where do we go from here, Rob? I, <laughs> I, I want people to know how terrible this song. This is the worst song <laughs> of the year. Worst song yeah, of the fucking decade. Absolutely. It's, just... it's, it's up there. You, uh, you sort of mentioned it to me recently and I put it on and. Yeah, my response has been slowly uh, uh, forming a large number of ellipses in my brain. The biggest question is, how did he get a female performer to like have a guest spot on that song? I don't know, man. I don't know. The entire EP is not good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's terrible. it's terrible. And this is a decade where Kid Rock put out at least one album. Yeah, so like, let's just think about that one for a while. Fucking Corey Feldman put out an album, and you can't even like say he had the worst song of the year or the decade. Before we dive deep into this, I just want to note two quick things, okay? So Dave Paulson tweets out his video with the upside down at 655. Uh, and and 804 National Treasure Jason Isbell himself responds with, "To me, this is a good. <laughs> yes. Like this is the best. This is the best. The, like Jason Isbell regularly wins the internet, but this is like a whole new level of that. Yeah, he is like in a year where we discussed feral hogs with Jason. Yes. he uh, he elevated himself here. If if the next album that he puts out is entitled 30 to 50 feral hogs, I'm going to feel a little upset, but I will completely understand. He is a national treasure. He is America's sweetheart. I will, uh, I will totally admit to that. Um, Do you think he removed like good cover or whatever? He just said, this is to me, this is a good, like on purpose to troll. You know, maybe I think like, like Jason Isbell, I don't think a lot of people realize before, 
uh, he really went whole hog into music, was actually an English major. So Whole hog, eh, Rob? Yep. <laughs> I had whole to. I had to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... Uh... Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here, so I don't know where to begin with all this, um, uh, because there's the notion of, like, establishment country versus uh, popular country and how those two sort of uh, converge and diverge, and the nature of the context by which you record a cover song that is perhaps uh, uh, very, very deeply personal to the person who recorded it. You know, there's these kinds of two, like, very large concepts to sort of unpack. Yeah, um, and I mean, like, e- even so... Zach Brown, I think, is one of the first artists that ever decided to cover him because uh, he covered another song back on his uh, Jekyll and Hyde album in 2015. Uh, it's a song called Dress Blues, and I saw Zach Brown on that tour, and his cover of that song kind of brought the house down because it's a very somber song about kind of like a born-in-the-USA kind of situation, but like not specifically about uh, returning soldiers that can't get jobs, but, like, you know, have to deal with, like, homelessness and other issues. So, um... Is it fair to say that Zach Brown uh, has a hard-on for Jason Isbell? I think it's uh, implied. I think it's implied. Pretty safe to say. Yeah. Um, so, Isbell did respond, you know, a little more coherently later on. <laughs> and, um, you know, in the in the wholesome style of Jason Isbell, he tweeted out, guys, it's really cool that Wallen is singing my song. That's what I'm trying to say. Everybody just relax. You're about to have to deal with your family at the holidays. This isn't a thing to stress over. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Wallen, ever the fan, responded back saying, man, your opinion means more to me than anyone else's when it comes to this. Thank you. So, you know, two guys, like one guy gushing over another. It's great. Um there was another article that uh, I didn't reference that was written earlier this year. And um, it seems like Jason Isbell, he's more popular than he has ever been before. Taylor Swift has gone on to say that she likes Jason Isbell. Um, is cover me up like a standard now? Do you think it's a standard? Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I don't know if it's reached karaoke style, like, uh, you know, uh, entered into a lot of band sets as of yet. I do feel the next couple of years, it's got this weird momentum to it, right? And even Isabel acknowledges it online that it's sort of have a, uh, it's having life its own because he was saying that, like, you know, a lot of times you put a, a song and it dies after a year or two, but this is not the case. It's a decade afterwards almost, and it's still, it's still present in a lot of people's minds. It's still marking a lot of people in the way that they want to um, present it to their audiences, right? So I think it's a great gateway uh, towards sending that off uh, to people who wouldn't have necessarily heard that before. Uh, I feel like another five years is going to make it the sta- a standard, I think. Yeah, it's definitely gained a lot of momentum this year, and I think it's just going to be on everybody's radar. Is this going to be like kind of a Leonard Cohen hallelujah kind of situation, do you think? Like, uh, it's going to be known for everybody else doing it but Jason Isbell? I don't know if that's the case because he's very much part of the conversation now, and a lot of people reference him, right? So I'm not sure if there's something that's going to... There hasn't been a definitive cover to eclipse his version as of yet, and a lot of people acknowledge... Um, that this is his song, right? And I don't think that's always the case when someone covers Hallelujah. A lot of people have to sort of backtrack to realize whose original recording is on. Yeah, I think 
a lot of the artists that have covered it so far are very respectful in the way that they cover it. And I think a lot of that has to do with just how personal the song is. It's, you know, Jason Isbell's redemption moment. So I think most of those artists, you know, respond to that, respect that and realize the power of the song. And uh, it's cool to see that he's getting the credit for it. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I do hope that it turns into whatever he puts out next is 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 carrying that momentum too, right? But then again, the pressure's on to record something just as good as Cover Me Up. And uh, I listened to Morgan's version. Actually, I don't mind it at all. I remember when I first sent it to you and you just kind of like, you were kind of okay on it. But like, it, the more you listen to it, the better it sounds. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, and like, for a guy who, you know, he's a former voice contestant didn't end up winning but like changed his vocals up to make him sound more country still brings a lot to the table so you know it's it's not a bad song it's currently number i i want to say 44 or 45 on the hot country chart which is uh, interesting for like a single that isn't associated with an album and i don't know if it's going to appear on an album but you never know i assume Morgan Wallen's going to have a new album this year. It's been two years since uh, his first album came out, so we'll have to see you know where that goes. But uh, I want to put I want to throw this question to you: Are there songs that artists just shouldn't cover? Are there songs so either beloved because of their like they're just so beloved, or due to the content of the song? Uh, can I ask a question as sort of like an asterisk? Yeah. Is uh, fatigue? A criterion here yeah it could definitely be part of the conversation yeah because i mean things like like uh like stairway to heaven for example right done to death live and in every guitar center you know in the nation so i think that like that uh needs to be stayed away from for a while yeah i i agree um you know i i will admit that Freebird has not i don't think it's like reached that level of cover status that um, warrants it to to reach that level but i think it's close it's teetering i'd agree with that yeah i'd agree that like it's it's on the precipice of being too much but it's not too much right now yeah um have there have you ever been upset by somebody covering another artist's song that you can think of <sighs> that's a really good question usually it takes me time to digest these things so i never outright have said no but the worst covers are the ones that are just too straight you know what i mean just a reproduction of um what we've heard before uh, from the original song. Right. And I think that was why I had a big issue with like Weezer's cover album because it most of those oh, right. most of those yeah. covers are just like really straightforward. Uh though I will give um Rivers Cuomo a uh nod for the Take On Me cover because he hit those high notes, man. And well their cover of Africa, for example, was kind of a note for note, right? Yeah. Like it just it, it didn't have any energy that was any different. It didn't really sh- present anything that like was interesting to me personally. Like it was it was a pretty faithful cover and I think that was the problems that it was too faithful. Yeah, and I think it just like it was like Weezer covering a song and I think that's why you know, it captured the attention of a, a lot of people at the time. And then, you know, they kind of had this cool back and forth with Toto, which was, you know, which was fun. Um, oh, Disturbed Sound of Silence. Uh, didn't care for it, even though it was a, a vastly different cover in certain ways. I really did not care for that. And I think it has less to do with the song and more of the, the approach to it. Right. And 
I think Disturbed has kind of had that problem, you know, for many of its covers. I will say their Land of Confusion cover is... Uh, it bangs. Yeah, it fucking bangs. Uh, I would say it bangs more than the original, so uh, fight me, whatever. <laughs> um, I think the one cover... and. Uh, People will probably get pissed at me for saying this, and I don't care. When Joe Strummer covered Redemption Song, I hated it. And yeah, the main that's reason good... why I hated it is Joe Strummer does not know what it's like to be in that kind of situation. He had no place to really cover that song. And, uh, yeah, I felt strongly about it at the time. One thing that I would love sort of tangentially for you and I to do is go through all those Punk Goes compilations. Yeah. Uh, for an episode because I feel like there's a lot of bad covers up there that I've yet to uh, let my brain rediscover. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, one of my favorite covers of all time is a live cover of Hot in Here by the jam band Widespread Panic from their <laughs> Jack Assel Lantern uh, compilation from 2003, I think. <laughs> that's this that's going sounds good. Yeah, it's going on the playlist. Yeah. It's going oh, on perfect. the playlist. <laughs> Uh, the thing is, like, I, I'm not mad about cover songs. Like, I have an entire uh, Spotify playlist of, like, new metal cover songs that I don't mind, right? So That's, <laughs> that's uh, you know, on brand. Brian right pretty there. Pretty on brand for me. Uh, for all that to say, though, like, I kind of want to come back to the discussion of, like, establishment country versus pop country, right? Yeah. And I feel like country music, popular country music in 2019 is is, is in a very weird place, right? Because you have your uh, Blanco Browns, you have your, your Lil Nas X's uh, creeping up on the charts. Um, and disrupting the very thought of what country is or will be because the fact that country has slowly, um, on the popular side of things, morphed into a weird sort of like a pop uh, adjacent um, uh, clean production, the hand claps, the weird way that the beats all fall at the same time, sort of homogenous stew. Um, so I feel like these discussions are really weird to have because of the fact that like in 2019, I don't believe that these barriers exist anymore, but the internet, I guess, is proving me wrong. Country has become very amorphous, so I agree with you. It's It's been leaning more towards pop. The kind of bro country that the 2010s has really shoved down people's throats is kind of, you know, not, like, going away, but it's kind of receding into the background to the point where, like, have you listened to Jason Aldean's We Back? <laughs> uh, last night actually in fact with my wife like generic <laughs> rock country song that's what it is like we back we back <laughs> we, we were actually laughing about that because we're like this is like the same kind of um guitar breaks that uh luke bryan uses <laughs> they are like it's the same it's the same kind that like most of the bro country dudes are using except for uh florida georgia line just because like yeah even then yeah they're they're way more edm yeah they're they they, they've been heading in the more pop direction and i think with the mainstream country issue here i mean if you look at morgan wallen i think a lot of people have issue with the fact that uh he was featured on the song heartless (laughs) so (laughs) right um it's not a bad song. It's not completely EDM. It's kind of like, eh, you know, venture. But it's weird there. because Kane Brown had a huge hit and it hit it with, uh, you know, one thing, right? And that was Marshmallow, right? Yeah. On the beats? Yeah. And that, that was a huge hit this year on the country charts. Yeah, it was a number one hit for, I yeah. think, a couple of weeks. Yeah. And I mean, right now you have um, uh, 10,000 Hours by uh, Dan, Dan and, and Shay and Justin Bieber. So uh, pop is dominating like most of the charts and uh, this is a uh, kind of a good segue into our last news story. Uh, so 
Billboard, the world's biggest music influencer. And that's what I'm going to call them. They are a music influencer. They're the ones that release the charts. They're the ones that tell you what the number one hits are for the most part. At least they're the ones that tally the charts that matter. That that uh, radio pays attention to and stuff. Uh, fun little side note. When I was uh, a kid, uh, my father, uh, every, I, I want to say it was Friday, would bring home Billboard because uh, of his radio station job. He was the um, music director for a long time. So uh, that was always cool. But, uh, Brian, we're chart junkies, man. We, yes, we, we are. We love that fucking data. So... Uh, and we also get very angry at some of those data, including the uh, the top 10 uh, hot rock songs of the last decade. And Rob, I would love it if you read all 10 to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, hold on, hold on. Sorry, I got to get comfortable for this. Uh, this okay. Um, allow me to uh, pull this up. So, uh, the top 10 rock songs of the decade. So, Billboard released its decade-end charts a, a few weeks ago. And we're, we're pointing out just how fucking boring the top rock songs of the decade are, uh, with the exception of one, maybe two. Um, the first, uh, number one, Believer by Imagine Dragons. Number two, Thunder by Imagine Dragons. Number three, Radioactive <laughs> by Imagine Dragons. Number four, High Hopes by Panic at the Disco. Number five, Ho Hey by the Lumineers, which is a really still stupid title for a song. Amen. Um, number six, Heathens by 21 Pilots. Uh, number seven, Shut Up and Dance by Walk the Moon. Eight, Feel It Still, the only really good song on this uh, chart by Portugal Agreed. the Man. Uh, number nine, Ride by 21 Pilots. And ten, Stressed Out by 21 Pilots. I will make a note, um, Radioactive still bangs, but you know, that is what it is. <laughs> Feel the thunder, Rob. I, feel feel the thunder, dude. Uh, I'm breathing in the chemicals, man. I'm breathing them in. And then, if you continue onwards, um, uh, Pompeii by Bastille is number eleven, and then number twelve is Take Me to Church with Hose, uh, by Hozier. Um, uh, number fourteen, a favorite of mine, AWOL Nation, Sail. Uh, that is an unabashed classic. You can't go wrong with it. And then, of course, like uh, it's really sad because like uh, legitimate hard rock bands like Rise Against is number twenty-two, Stone Sour is twenty-four. Uh, uh, Rob Schneider's daughter, L. King, is 27. Man. There's like, there's not, it's just, yeah, I agree with you. Like, uh, Feel Still is the only kind of like great rock song on here. Like, High Hopes, I'd classify more as a pop song than anything else. Right. Like, and then Shut Up and Dance is great, but it also is uh, like pop adjacent. It is pop adjacent. It's something you can dance to. So, like, if you could pull up the guitars on there, uh, I, I, they're buried in the next, right? It's just, it's, it's, yeah, I have issues with that. So, like, is everything in... Everything's bad. Uh, is everything just, like, like uh, on, like, multiple charts here? You know, country, rock, uh, EDM. Is it all just funneling towards pop music now? Is that... Absolutely. Is it becoming so homogenous now that you, like, soon you won't even be able to, like, different, differentiate it? Are we getting to that bears- level? I think the bears have been broken in a lot of ways, which is both good and also as we're quickly pointing out quite kind of bad. Kinda kinda bad. Uh yeah. Yeah. Um I haven't looked at the like Billboard Hot One Hundred, like the main chart for the decade, and I'm kinda scared to at this point, but I think I'm going to have to. 
Uh, I'm doing this right now. I'm assuming uh, that number one has to be Lil Nas X and Old Town nope. Road. It's not. No, Uptown Funk. Really? Yeah, they're not even. Uh, oh, Lil Nas X is number seven. Wow. For, I know. Considering I know. like the fact that it broke the record for longest number one song, how the hell did that happen? I have, I I guess like uh, strength of staying on the chart. Uh, yeah, that probably has a lot to do with it. Because uh, uh, it dipped down, it went number one and then dipped right back down for after like it's it's ring right. So yeah, it would like dip to like number seven, I think. Number two is uh, incest adjacent band LMFAO with party rock anthem. A band that isn't even together anymore. No, I guess that's what happens when you try to tour with your uncle. That had to have been so fucking awkward. <laughs> yeah, I uh, yeah, not a, not a fun place to be. No. Uh, you know, there's a lot of really good things on here, a lot of really bad things. Um, uh, Blurred Lines is number 14. That's great. Perfect. Yep. Glad to hear that, guys. Oh, boy. Um, uh, yeah, yeah prob- Anyways, problematic uh, performances of the decade. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you leave Beetlejuice alone, my friend. <laughs> no, I will uh, not. <laughs> funny to note, though, Rob, Radioactive, number 36 here. Still an unabashed banger. Um, you know, I will go to my grave loving that song. Kind of ironic that Post Malone's Rockstar did not chart on the uh, the rock charts, but uh, that is neither here nor there. Uh, very angry list, of course. Uh, when you have six out of ten spots being taken up by uh, two uh, artists who are known for uh, elevator music. Uh, yes, definitely elevator music. Um, though, though Heathens was a good song, even though it's attached to the awful Suicide Squad movie. Oh God, don't don't <laughs> remind me of how bad that fucking movie was. Yeah, it's it's a perfect uh, time to end our news portion of this episode. Why don't we just head on over to the main topic, man? Sounds good. (laughs) When you think of an experimental album, your mind probably drifts to artists like Captain Beefheart, Animal Collective, Frank Zappa, or, say, Panda Bear. Experimental music pushes music beyond its compositional boundaries to create new and original sounds. Experimental albums, however, seldom top the Billboard 200 album chart. And for this episode, we eat, we assigned each other a task. Come up with two experimental albums that top the 200. And we're leaving the term experimental very loose for this episode because I have a feeling I'm coming at this differently than you will. So, 100%. So, Brian, kick us off, man. So... I uh, try to define experimental as like outside the box of what you would normally conventionally find on the top of the, you know, the, the album 200 chart. Um, and so I sort of quickly looked at all of the pop figures of the day and removed those, the rock figures of the day and removed those. And then I looked through the last 30 years worth of uh, number one albums. And I've come up with two that I think are very on brand for me and that may not surprise you. Um, if you uh, know my listening tastes, um, my first one is an album that hit the top of the charts the week of September 22nd, 2001. It is uh, System of a Down's Toxicity. Hot damn. What a fucking classic, man. I, that was definitely in rotation in the CD binder. So it's an album that has a critique of the prison industrial complex just to, you know, kick things off with prison song. There is a track on there called Bounce that's about group sex. Uh, There is a song called Atwa all about Charles Manson's beliefs about the environment. 
and uh, one of the biggest rock singles of the 2000s, Chop Suey, which is also about drug addiction, but in a sort of un-PC uh, kind of way. This album is uh, very experimental in the way that it presents different instrumentation, various temples, uh, time signatures. Um, it is a very frenetic mix of uh, slow and fast. And uh, the cool thing about System of Down is they repeated the same feat of hitting number one twice in 2005 with Mesmerize as well as Hypnotize. And despite reuniting for several long stretches in the years since to play live festivals, presumably for large paychecks, they have yet to put out new music under the System of Down banner, which is uh, a bit unfortunate because these three albums, in particular Toxicity, I feel are a very distillation of a time and a place. And I feel like uh, it rewards you with repeated listens. There's a ton of like hidden kind of like secondary and third um, rhythm, uh, as well as some like weird lead uh, guitar tracks. There's a ton on here to explore. Um, the single Ariel is amazing. Mm. The uh, uh, the title track is great too um there's a little bit of everything here that you don't necessarily see uh in this sort of album that would hit number one no it's a very unique album and system of the down kind of like occupied the same space like toward the tail end of rage against the machines uh kind of time together and they managed to be unique in that space which is great and like really killer songs, really great lyrics, really just so fucking weird too. So fucking weird. I wanted to say, and I feel like it's kind of cliche to use, but like there's a lot of like Middle Eastern influences on there yes. in terms of tempo as well as instrument choice. And I feel it's kind of like a lazy way to describe it. But in certain ways, it's also like the perfect shortcut to sort of describe how it sounds too. So I'm of two minds of using that term. And uh, also just to let you know, Rob, uh, Raging Against the Machines Battle of LA was on my honorable mentions in terms of like albums I thought about um placing it number one or in, on this list because it did come out and hit number one uh in late 1999 it was an album i used to uh play often with my ex-brother-in-law like we thought we were badass riding around <laughs> a small ass town with that uh that album just blaring you could tell we were white bread uh, the part, the, the guitar part that uh, kicks in at uh um on born of a broken man mm total it's like a bass drop almost and it's very enjoyable uh you know and yeah as well as like sort of like a, a, a makes you feel tough it does i mean like you know the beginning of that song it's like this new dawning moment you know the it's a lighter guitar and then it, it just drops man and uh, hell yeah and, and you feel badass all right rob what you got on your list so um i'm gonna be talking about a live album and let me tell you most live albums don't sell and most artists don't make them. Uh, there are a few that have uh, risen to a level of prominence that you know by name. Frampton Comes Alive is an obvious choice. Cheap Tricks at Budokan is another. The Talking Heads Stop Making Sense rose to cult-like status in the 2000s with the release of the entire show on CD, which was in 2004, I believe. Uh, in the 90s, Garth Brooks was less a musical artist Hell and yes. more of a phenomenon. His logo, Bring it home. his logo, a lowercase g, made him seem humble, even when it flew from banners that were more than thirty feet long. His songs were relatable, and so was Garth himself. He was humble and funny, and you just wanted to be him or be around him. Uh, before his massive double live album, Double Live, every album before it was multi platinum. His live shows were legendary, but even in 1998, a live album was a risky thing to do. Country artists, as a rule of thumb, 
don't generally release live albums. And if they did, you probably don't know about them. Johnny Cash excluded. Double Live hits shelves on November 17th, 1998, and it shot straight to number one. In fact, the album broke the first week sales record previously held by Pearl Jam in their album Versus. It became the fastest selling live album in U.S. history and is the best selling live album of all time, certified 21 times platinum. Woo! Yeah. It's, uh, do you know what album it shares a number 10 spot with? Think 90s, think mid 90s. I've, I've talked about this artist before. The Alton. Hmm. It's an artist, like a singular artist? No, it's a band. It's a band. Oh, because the only thing I can think about is, is Clapton Unplugged. Uh, no, not Clapton Unplugged. Uh, this is not an, a, a live album, but um, uh, Hootie and the Blowfish's Crack Review. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> uh, yo, I love Double Live. I'm so glad that you brought this up because I agree. It is experimental. Uh, it is, as you're saying, a live album. Uh, it's true. A lot of country artists definitely do not put out live albums. They do not have the stage show to do so. Um, so it was, yeah, you're right. It was an anomalous and then it sold so well. Right. And it's also the only, um, countrified version of an Aerosmith song that I actually like. And that's even saying Steven Tyler's recent solo output. Uh, yeah, 100%. Um, so if you've never heard, uh, if the listeners have never heard double live before, um, if, if you've never heard Garth before, it's kind of the perfect way to experience, Yes, Garth in in an environment because you're getting like key performances of songs like the dance and the extended version of the Thunder Rolls. It also features the extended edition of Friends in Low Places, which uh, if you're at karaoke, it tests even the true diehard Garth fans. Man, I have seen people bomb that extended edition uh, at karaoke. Um, it featured guest performances from Steve Warner and Trisha Yearwood who would later become his wife. And it, it featured a handful of new songs, which live albums didn't necessarily have. Like most live albums featured songs you knew by heart. Uh, and I'm not talking about Jimmy Buffett here, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> uh, it included, a, 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 an amazing song called tearing it up and burning it down. Just a rip roaring song. Uh, probably, one of Garth's most middling songs, Your Song, was also featured on that. But um, I think when we, when we talk about experimental, part of the album's success and its experimental nature is due to its marketing strategy. One thing Garth was good at was making his content seem like it was limited edition, which you know, in many ways drove people to his concerts. Double Live was no different, and for six straight weeks, the album felt like the prize in a cereal box or a toy in a McDonald's Happy Meal. Essentially, for six straight weeks, Garth would release a new limited edition cover for the album, and this tactic sustained sales for weeks, and Double Live continued to shift units. So, um... Is Double Live experimental in the true sense? Not exactly. It's a live album, but... If anything, this is a risk and reward kind of situation. Garth's marketing, uh, though, is probably the most experimental thing about this album, let alone the risk to release a live album. I don't think Garth necessarily had a lot to lose by putting out Double Live, but it gained so much. In fact, it's his best-selling album of all time. 
Agreed. Uh, it's funny that you were mentioning that it's a great introduction to Garth because I was recently listening to the live Ariana Grande K by for now live album. And I feel like I enjoy that so much more than a greatest hits compilation. Yeah. And I think maybe a live album may fill that void going forward. That's a great point, man. And it may, it may be the next thing for artists to put out. Um, as long I mean, as it is, they- it is, it is costlier to put out than a repackaged greatest hits, but given the fact that you can now very easily record a lot more, it isn't as, uh, expensive as it used to be when you'd have to get the mobile truck outside. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could just patch into the soundboard. Uh, there are bands like widespread panic and, uh, Pearl Jam that have found a secondary market for this kind of thing. So it's become a regular kind of uh, thing at their shows. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful because the one Pearl Jam show that I went to, I own a physical copy of. Yeah. And I think that was a largely successful kind of endeavor and other artists have tried to copy that too, but it is, it was more expensive to do um, when they started doing this um, compared to now, probably. Yeah. Well, 100% and Garth could afford to do something like this. He had, he was a multimillionaire by this point. His albums were selling extremely well. In fact, if you look at the highest selling albums of all time and you look in the top 25, there are three that are by Garth Brooks. So, And it's funny because this came off the heels of a year earlier, the Live from Central Park um, uh, recording. Yes. Yes, it did. So that was kind of interesting. I think a lot of people were writing that off too. Um, that wave of like, oh, I love Garth Live. Maybe I'll check this out. And also, as you were mentioning, like the marketing um, angle of the limited edition covers and that I think also um, played well into collector's hands. It did. And uh, even uh, one staple that we had growing up in my house is we had a copy of his greatest hits album, The Hits. And one thing that it says right on the bottom, limited release uh, limited time only, I think, or limited release or something like that. But Garth drove you to want to buy his stuff because of that kind of marketing ploy. You could Question st- for you. Yeah. Is Garth Brooks the Disney vault of country music? I think so at this point, just because of the way that he has gone about uh, his digital... Uh, uploads on uh, Amazon Music and stuff like the third rate streaming platform at this point. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but it's true. Like if you get your music from Amazon Music, that's great. But uh, to be completely honest, Amazon Music is probably a loss leader kind of product for Amazon. So doesn't Absolutely. doesn't really matter. But uh, in many ways, yeah, I do, and I. And, like, you know, Garth has failed at the streaming shit before, like, uh, Ghost Tunes, you know, Folded. Oh, wow, I forgot about Ghost Tunes. Yeah, Ghost Tunes was just, uh, nice try, bud, but it just wasn't happening. <laughs> like, yeah, that was... <laughs> and, like, I think, oh, I think even at this point... If, if you're creating your own streaming service just for your own albums, that might be problematic, my friend. Yeah, it is. Like, you're forcing people to choose to like download another app like i don't even think ghost tunes was an app that you could install on your phone it was only on your computer uh, you could actually download uh, ghost tunes for ios and android wow amazing but see the fact that you didn't know that is probably the reason why it tanked yeah and like either garth brooks doesn't care and, and we've mentioned this, you know, and talked about this previously. Garth Brooks doesn't care about 
his like physical output in terms of music and making it accessible like the nature of the accessibility has changed it's not that because previously it relied on the physical media aspect now he doesn't have that as much so like he's kind of at a weird crossroads kind of situation where he's still going to win entertainer of the year at the ACMs uh but like he's not going to sell records like he used to not that people are necessarily selling records but he's not going to stream them right do you think he, do you think he's missing a younger audience with all of this yeah 100% but i don't think that Garth Brooks is necessarily writing songs for a younger audience at this point either, which, um, or, or, or at least like the old Garth that wrote songs that like were progressive in many ways, like touching on, you know, issues of domestic violence or, yeah, uh, like, um, standing outside the fire is a, the, the music video was that for that was great and, and right. stuff, but, uh, um, I don't think Garth is that same artist, and uh, I've I've sent you the video of Garth from earlier this year. I think it was from his Facebook. That's like really creepy. Do you recall seeing that where he's just like holding the phone up and he's like, "I'm gonna do whatever I want in this space," <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh God, no, Garth!" That was such a weird, random thing that his handler should have taken down immediately. It, it, yeah, man. It was like almost like those Kevin Spacey videos of recent times. Yeah. Oh man. Sorry, I I, I know. No. It's, they're they're all unfortunate, but just Garth Brooks seems to be a good man fundamentally, so I'm willing to allow him to have this. Yeah. Um. So Brian, hit us with your second experimental album. Um. So before I'd like to do that, I just want to mention two quick ones that were contenders. Um. That I think you'd agree with. Number one is uh, Radiohead's Kid A. Yeah, definitely a contender on that. Which I thought about that. And the second one I think you're going to enjoy, um, it came out uh, and hit number one October 6, 2018, which is uh, Brockhampton's Iridescence, which is just basically like one long album that's sort of sequenced in a way where it's like sounds with one track. And I thought it was really interesting for such an experimental um, rap collective, uh, basically born of the internet, to reach such heights compared to uh, traditional pop stars. So I thought that was kind of interesting for them to, to touch number one. Yeah, 100%, man. Uh, it's It's kind of amazing that they did hit number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, even even in this like altered atmosphere, I thought it was cool. Yeah. Uh my number one is or sorry, my my second choice is a very kind of surprising one uh, in certain ways but not at the same time. Uh I picked an album that hit number one the week of June 29th, 2013 and that is uh Black Sabbath's 13 album. Oh wow. Man, I haven't even thought about that album in a while. <laughs> Well, it is worth checking out. So uh, what other number one album has two eight-minute songs to start things off, right? So The End of the Beginning and God is Dead, question mark, uh, are both uh, clocking into eight minutes each. Uh, it's a crushing ode in a far better way to end things than the pair of studio tracks from their uh, 99 reunion album, Reunion, uh, which was a live album with like two studio tracks tacked on the end. And uh, before that, 1995's Truly Awful Forbidden, which was produced by body count guitarist Ernie C. So uh, this is a bit of uh, Sabbath trivia that I've remembered throughout the years. <laughs> so uh, the first track is called Illusion of Power. Uh, uh, the only guest to ever feature on a Black Sabbath track is Ice-T. Oh, wow. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> Which is uh, not... Uh, don't go listen to it. Trust me. It's not It's not worth it, Rob. Don't don't touch the fire. No. Um, I'm standing outside the fire, Brian. I learned my lesson back in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> 
the album rules. Uh, so basically, because they had problems with the drummer Bill Ward, they brought in uh, Brad Wilk of Rage Against the Machine fame to drum. Um, and Tony Iommi's riffs definitely uh, elevate the entire project. I felt like he kept a bag of riffs just for like this album uh, after so many years. It's um, it's heavy metal with a wholesome welcome dose of like very slow, almost dirge like like doom metal in certain places. It's the perfect funeral soundtrack for this longstanding band, and it's also the first number one they've ever had in the United States, which I thought was really cool. That is kind of amazing, and it's a it's a great nod to them in in, in many ways. Uh, I kind of feel like that album is um, along the same veins as uh, Van Halen's A Different Kind of Truth. It's like... Which... Have we discussed how great that album is? Um, no, we haven't. Oh, it is... Like, for a quote-unquote comeback album, fucking amazing. I, if there's anything I'll knock it for is that fucking song, Tattoo. I cannot stand it. <laughs> it, is... it was also the lead single, right? Yes. So, unfortunately, uh, they led with the wrong foot, but the entire rest of the album is so good. Yeah, agreed. Um... The rest of the album definitely lives past that sexy dragon magic or whatever the fuck lyric that was <laughs> on that song. It definitely, you know, just, it's, it's... Did you hate the train sounds? Is that the problem? Yeah, that's part of it. <laughs> so the second track, She's the Woman, on A Different Kind of Truth, is also fucking amazing. Yeah, so just... 100%. I completely, I completely agree. Yeah. So, yeah, coming back to Black Sabbath, though, even though I could probably spend another half hour on Van <laughs> point uh i really enjoy the album it's not an album that a lot of people have on their minds but i think a lot of people should give it another shot in the year of our lord 2019 2020 uh it it rewards you as a metal listener as a fan of their music in a way that a lot of albums don't especially so far into their career right um i mean in between uh when they started touring doing the reunion they also did heaven and hell with dio they put out one really good album in 2009 together um sans ozzy um, but it's definitely like a fitting sort of like epitaph to sort of end things off. If that's the last thing that Sabbath decides to put out together as a unit, then like great. I think it's worth a re-listen and a, a, a definitely re-evaluation of where it stands in the um, popular heavy metal um, uh, lexicon. Yeah, 100%. Um, I, I, I need to go back and listen to it because it's been a while since I have. And I was kind of lukewarm on it at first but if you sit down and you actually give it another try and concentrate on it i it's surprising because i did that recently in preparing for this and i was like this is actually uh maybe i'm just a big sabbath head i don't know but either way like i really enjoy the album for what it was uh sort of like uh for what it was yeah and it's like um how are we going to look at albums like that albums like lulu um albums uh, Please don't put that in the same way. Though. I know, but like, how are we going <laughs> to like? Do you think Lulu is going to re- reach a level of redemption in the future? Like three hundred years, perhaps, when we recontextualize what music is in that vein, and people rediscover it, and you know, and our grand grand grandchildren do it. Sure, there you go. Yeah, okay, I can, I can agree on that. <laughs> no, but I, I do think it's a really good question, right? Like a lot of these later era sort of like um heavy metal bands, uh, like for example, like Judas Priest put out Firepower last year, and that was an amazing record. Forty eight years into their existence, like that's not supposed to happen. No, it's not. Uh, twenty sixteen, uh, when uh the Rolling Stones came out with Blue and Lonesome, that was a fucking amazing record. Yeah, it was. So like, you know longevity there's there's still some good stuff in there there's bound to be some good stuff in there so maybe longevity isn't the killer the creative killer that we all think it is 
I mean, unfortunately, it mostly is um, both in terms of critical perception as well as actual output. But I feel like there are certain instances, especially like with 13, for example, like where I felt everything came together perfectly in such a way that I liked it. And it's no thanks to absentee producer Rick Rubin. Shots fired. Fucking Rick Rubin, man. He kind of pisses me off. There's uh, I recently was reading the 33 and a third book about um, Rain and Blood, the Slayer album, and they uh, like they kind of all gave him a little bit of uh, a talking to uh, both in studio as well as like outside of studio. Um, not uh, they weren't a big fan of his producing style uh, towards the last couple of records. Yeah, and uh, in uh, Steve Corbin's book Hard to Handle, there's a brief like mention of him like trying to get the band to change their name and like include like the KKK in their name, which was like really <laughs> fucking dumb. It was really yeah, fucking just, dumb, but like checks out. Yeah. But the, I think the great thing was, is like, it's the black crows. They weren't afraid to kick anybody's ass. And they basically said they would kick his ass. <laughs> uh, Rob, what is your uh, second experimental album? So, uh, you previously mentioned this artist as, um, being in your honorable mentions, uh, we're going to Radiohead, but we're not going to Kid A, like, the obvious choice would be, so, uh, Radiohead, oh, wow, can't even speak, Radiohead has always been... Is Radiohead or Shoegaze album, by the way, <laughs> like, or just our project? We're doing... We're, we're doing we're a just... side project, Hold Radio on, Bed. Just double check this, Radiohead, Radio... has that been taken? <laughs> No, we're good, uh, Rob. We're good. We, Radio Bed has not been taken. Okay, that's the name of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Um, Radiohead has always been a band that has pushed the envelope. Uh, they are more like a chameleon changing its colors, adapting to whatever environment it chooses to live in. Uh, their album, OK Computer, put them on the map, and then three years later, Kid A would establish them as the great adapters of change. At least that's always how I've viewed them. Um, but there's a period between Kid A and their album In Rainbows that is kind of nondescript for the band. It's maybe not like... For a band, it's not like a, wor a worst-case scenario because it's like Radiohead and like, Aside from maybe, like, Pablo Honey, which is kind of, like, shaky at times, uh, it's not really a bad period for the band, but there wasn't a lot going on. But they, I mean, like, uh, Hail to the Thief was probably, like, their weakest entry in that period, right? Yeah. Like, I just, like the single There There is fine, but apart from, like, I don't, I don't care for most of that album, I'll be honest with you. No, it's, uh, it's pretty lame, but um, the, the album I'm picking here is In Rainbows, and yes. the reason that the milieu that i'm bringing you these experimental albums has more to do with their marketing than the actual music so uh with in rainbows they began to work on it in 2005 uh at the time they were without a label they had left emi um so they were pretty much free to do whatever they want uh, they started working on it with producer spike stent but no new uh, album really grew from those sessions so they hit the road they toured europe and north america and tested some new material on the road kind of like an rem uh new adventures in hi-fi kind of situation and ultimately re-enlisted producer uh nigel godrich to help them with this album so in october of 2007 
Radiohead went pretty bold. Like, nobody, no mainstream artist really at the time was releasing albums without a label. This was a huge thing at the time. And they allowed their listeners to pay what they wanted for it. That was a revolutionary thing at the time. Um, the album was critically acclaimed because it's a great fucking album, period. Um, and many ranked it, you know, the best of the year and even the decade. It also won two Grammys, including, um, and kind of ironically, the Grammy for Best Boxed or Special Limited Edition Packaging. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the effect of... The way they release that is still felt today because uh, I think this album in many ways was a precursor to services like Bandcamp, which formed, I think, not long after this. So that was actually going to be my question is, is there a Bandcamp with Ending Rainbows? I, I don't think so, to be honest exactly. with you. Yeah, I don't think so either. I, I don't think you have a Spotify or an Apple Music or anything like that without this right here now don't get me wrong like um in rainbows didn't you know automatically destroy the need for physical media right away like you started to get that in the 2010s uh and you shared like a a, a graphic or like a thing in the twitter dms earlier and it showed how the transition from physical media to streaming has gone this decade. It's you yeah. know, you've felt it the most this decade. So I don't think you would have that without in rainbows. There is no, there is no way, especially when you consider the fact that most people didn't pay for this album. They they just downloaded it for free, and yet its sales numbers digitally beat all of its previous albums combined. Yep. And he also got to walk away with a bit larger part of the, the financial pie too, right? Yes. Yeah. They, you know, they did it all on their own. So, um, but like, not only did it pave the way for Bandcamp, but it, and, and like these type of services, but it paved the way for independent artists to release music without needing a label, without even needing to be like, huge mainstream artists they gave them a platform and that album is revolutionary for that and i don't think people give it a, the credit it deserves for doing that so basically it goes radiohead nine inch nails kind of everyone else right yeah and i think you're right in that it opened up a lot of doors and it's kind of interesting because they leveraged their record company uh fame you know, more or less, in order to be able to gain a fan base and then uh, sustain that fan base, right? Which is what a lot of people are now doing independent of any label distro or anything like that, which is amazing. Like you were saying before, like there are platforms like Bandcamp and even just directly putting your email into something and, and being able to download an album or, you know, uh, you know, giving money for an album is something that like is unheard of, right? So, uh, I mean, there's the, the, I don't know how to describe them, but like a, a spastic metal hardcore band protest the hero uh, started a patreon so basically they're releasing a song a month due to the fact that they were able to uh, gain enough subscriber dollars to go back to the studio and finish things up right so that was kind of cool and i think that like you were right in that it's a huge trickle down from radiohead onwards and so we get a lot of things like that too yeah we do i mean brock hampton wouldn't be hitting number one if it wasn't for this the, the this like the the digital 
um, community in the way that it is now. Like, I, I don't think a lot of artists today would be that way if, if they didn't. I mean, I, well, here's a perfect example. Run the jewels, right? Yeah. 100%. Which I think is one of the, like, the child of the next generation of, of Nine Inch Nails and Radiohead doing this is um, two people who had spent a lot of the, the 2000s and the early 2010s sort of, not necessarily in obscurity, but only, like, um, known to certain audiences, right? Like, alt-hip-hop heads. And then suddenly busting the door wide open with a pay-what-you-want model um, for three straight albums. And then, from what I understand, like, they've done quite well for themselves. Their merch is selling through the roof. The last time I saw them in Montreal uh, two or three years ago, it was a 2000 cap room and that was sold out yeah and i do believe we're getting a new run the jewels album this year so yeah i think that like it's a really interesting point um uh that i had considered before but not as uh sort of like broadly as you've presented this which i think is really really cool hot damn man hot damn (laughs) uh you know bring in something a little different to the table which you know i we both did we we definitely both did so before I forget, though, um, something I want to bring up, sort of like tangential to that, is uh, uh, another band before we had sort of uh, uh, tried this model and didn't do quite as well. Uh, I want to talk about Harvey Danger. Yeah. Harvey Danger. I have not thought of Harvey Danger since, <laughs> n- like, what, 96? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they released uh, their 2005 Little by Little album on BitTorrent. Oh, wow, man. Oh. <laughs> and uh, did not end as well as everyone uh, thought it would. Uh, they were hoping to sort of uh, gain momentum, get some waves going, but uh, unfortunately uh, not. Yeah, man. And and the thing is, it's like, I really like Harvey Danger. Like, they've only ever put out four albums, but like, Where Have All the Merrymakers Gone is a fucking banger, man. Hell yeah. It's a fucking banger album, and... Um, yeah, it's good to take a mainstream, like a really mainstream band. Cause I think many people consider Harvey Danger, like, a, like within that group of alternative ni- mid nineties bands who were mostly one hit wonders, you know, like Marcy playground. Yeah. Marcy's playground, um, uh, primitive radio gods had that one song yep. on the cable yep. guy soundtrack. Um, uh, uh, White Town, your woman. Yes. Holy shit. Yeah. Um. The the. This is an episode, Rob. The episode yeah. The Verve pipe. <laughs> oh, and the Verve. Uh. Yeah. The the Verve never uh out outlived uh, Bittersweet Symphony. That's true. No, that's true. Well, I mean, on this side of the Atlantic, at least. I I mean, the buzz did play Lucky Man. <laughs> That is quite true, actually. That is a really good point. Um, uh, for those no that cared, don't know, the buzz it was the alternative station that Brian and I both listened to, and the funny thing was is that we didn't even know that we were that we had listened to it because, like, yeah, Brian's like a couple hours away from me, and I forget that uh, they do broadcast into Montreal, so. It's true. They used to have a buzz club up here in Montreal uh, 15 years ago. Right before I turned legal, they closed it down. That's bullshit, man. 
But is are we doing this? Are we doing the the nugget of truth to those who have survived this far into the uh, into the episode? Right. If you look at the cover of the Coda podcast and you go and head on over to ninety nine nine the Buzz's website, uh, chances are we are paying homage to uh, <laughs> their logo. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, it is something we bonded hard over, and um, if and that's why we're here. Yeah, that is that is definitely why we're here. And if you're really, you know, feeling the nostalgia wave. If you can track down Brian's Spotify, you can find a the numerous playlists devoted to buzz cuts. <laughs> it's true. So I actually uh, used archive.org to locate all of the, the top 99 songs per year uh, that were available on their website per year and then made a playlist from like 2000 or 1999 to like 2005 or six. That's love, man. That's devotion. Prime listening years. Oh, man. I remember those buzz cuts, dude. <laughs> uh shall we close things off rob uh yeah uh, let us uh head on <laughs> over now to the b side i think we've blown your minds enough here so we're, we're heading on over there we're gonna make you some recommendations so uh brian why don't you hit us off with uh your recommendation and uh as you've uh, prefaced it's a canadian recommendation correct uh the year is 2001 mm-hmm. brian turns the television on and uh, there used to be a show called Jonovision. Do you know Jonovision? I don't know Jonovision. Okay. So Jonovision was hosted by Jonathan Torrance, who I guess most of our American listeners would know as J-Rock from the Trailer Park Boys. Yes. Yeah. So he had a, a quite successful teenage talk show. Um, and uh, to his credit, he is the reason why Degrassi, the, new, the next generation, exists. Because he had a reunion episode that uh, uh, scored through the roof ratings-wise. And they realized that there's a whole new generation of people sort of like clamoring... I guess would be the best word, though I'm not sure you'd clamor for new Degrassi, but there was interest in Degrassi. Um, and so he often had musical guests on, and one of these musical guests caught my eye. So their band called Jet Set Satellite, and the album's called Blueprint. Um, and Jet Set Satellite walked so that bands like Three Days Grace could run. Uh, they were the perfect radio rock band. They put out the perfect radio rock record. There are two really big singles on there, Best Way to Die and Baby Cool Your Jets. Great production, great songwriting, and I'm really sad they never got any more recognition, both uh, here in Canada as well in the United States. They have two more records uh, uh, in 2005 and 2008. Uh, Definitely worth checking out. I really enjoy all three, but the first one for me is it. And uh, yeah, if you enjoy, as Rob was saying, uh, buzz cuts of yesteryear, chances are you're going to enjoy Jet Set Satellite. Yeah, you are, because... I'm going to go enjoy it. I had never heard of this band, so I am so psyched to like just get your uh, DMs when <laughs> you finally sit down and listen to this. <laughs> oh, oh, I will be DMing you, sir. <laughs> I will be DMing. <laughs> what you got for us, Rob? Uh, so my recommendation is an album that actually made my top ten for 2019, um, and it's an album that has my favorite artwork from this year and that album is traveling mercies by emily scott robinson uh the cover shows an open road at night with mountains in the distance it's a beautiful uh piece of art that was created for this album and that's kind of uh, and it's kind of the way that i feel about this album it's this open road kind of traveling album and it's constantly walking on it's constantly moving and you know, I would categorize this as an indie folk album. It's mostly Robinson and her guitar, but 
The songs deal with a variety of subjects, which include domestic violence, uh, sexual assault, death, and self-worth, and really depressing shit, but... (laughs) (laughs) Really, really selling here. The the sparseness of, of it recalls Jason Isbell circa 2013's kind of Southeastern, and she kind of has a little bit of Casey Musgraves in her voice. Um, despite the dark lyrical content in many ways, Robinson is there to guide you through, and she makes it feel like you're going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. Um, and honestly, the best advice I can give you is to press play and just get lost in it because it's one of those albums that you can. I listened to it three times alone today. So, like... Well, firstly, do you need to talk? No, no. Okay, I'm just, I'm just, you know, friend to friend, just making sure, because of the fact that you've described a lot of the subject matter, and I want to make sure we're good, you know? No, we're I good. want more Kodo podcasts out there. <laughs> no, we're, we're good, we're good, but Perfect. it's just... Uh, were you just doing some sad bastarding, like, just letting Brian, you know? it's my fucking thing, man. It's <laughs> just what I do. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Rob's brand, sad bastarding. Uh, Brian's band probably accidentally wore a baseball cap backwards for multiple years. How many years? Can you pinpoint that? None, actually. None, are, technically. Are you sure? But, uh, there, there are a lot of years where I should have, but yes. <laughs> How many of those years were inspired by Fred Durst? Uh, two, and then it was, uh, as I was saying earlier today, um, my haircut uh, for like older teenage me was definitely Chino Moreno of the Deftones. Just flippy and greasy and kind of there. Yeah, the uh, toned down Guy Fieri. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I wish that this were a PowerPoint presentation because then we could just click through the comparison um, sort of slides. Maybe we'll put something up on the like the, the socials. Yeah, we'll we'll have to do that. I know you were uh, a, a little offended when I shared that image with you. <laughs> <laughs> I was, but I lived with it because it is it is quite true. So it is fine. It is. It's it's great. So um, that's going to do it for episode three. Um, Brian, where can the listeners find us on the internet? So uh, you can find us at the Coda Podcast on Instagram as well as Twitter. You can also email us at the CodaCast at uh, gmail.com. Yes, you can. And uh, folks, this has been the Coda. And uh, don't forget to keep the cans on. <laughs>